Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. In Bill McKibben's planetary picture of a heedless, oil-addicted, maybe terminal human species, this war in Ukraine is a shock, but no surprise. Oil and cruel despotism go together, he will remind you. Oil is Russia's great underground treasure, the price on it rising as the war staggers on. Oil is Vladimir Putin's paymaster in the Ukraine invasion, and it's his weapon. Bill McKibben is the heart and mind of environmentalism, and he's our guest this hour in a podcast series we're calling In Search of Monsters, a collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. In the New Yorker magazine this week, Bill McKibben writes at length with his own peculiar scientific, moral, and popular authority. He's been losing ground year by year on his target goal of reducing fossil fuel carbon in the atmosphere. All the while, he's been gaining confidence and a worldwide movement behind him. This is a moment to be seized, he told me this week, to save a livable climate. Bill McKibben, I'm remembering fondly a conversation you and I recorded almost 35 years ago about your breakthrough book, The End of Nature. This week I'm reading your New Yorker epic about the world on fire, and I'm wondering, is this the end of us? We're all looking at a convergence of catastrophes. The war in Ukraine, smack in the middle, drenched in the politics and the money of oil. Some say the war will mark the end of the movement to save the environment. Oil, you say, is Putin's weapon. Talk about the connections you're feeling in this moment, Bill. None of them could. Yeah, look, I mean, 35 years ago, when we were first talking about climate change, it's not as if there were great mysteries about what was going on. We knew then what we needed to know. And so a book like The End of Nature was a series of warnings about what would happen if we didn't do what was clear we needed to do. We didn't do those things. And so, of course, the warnings are now coming true and even more so. I mean, some of it is, frankly, almost off the charts scary. This last few days, the temperature in the eastern Antarctic was registering at 70 degrees Fahrenheit above normal average temperature. It's the largest deviation from normal ever measured in any weather stations around the world. 70 degrees above what it would normally be. I don't know what the equivalent is, the equivalent of if, you know, Boston was 110 degrees in the middle of March. And at the same time, for the first time in many decades, we're talking seriously about the prospect of nuclear war and for completely related reasons. I mean, the driver in both these cases is in many ways the same thing. Vladimir Putin's army is funded by oil. 60% of Russia's export earnings are oil. And his weapon is oil and gas, the threat to turn off the tap to Western Europe. Uh, The only good news about any of this is that if we want to seize the moment, the answer is, as it has been for a long time, the same. Get off oil and gas. And the point of that New Yorker piece, or one of them, was that we're now at a moment in history when that's not only possible to contemplate, but relatively easy to contemplate. It makes complete economic as well as environmental and political sense. And now all we need to do is break the political power of 
the Putins, the Koch brothers, the king of Saudi Arabia, all the other oil and gas barons who want to keep us locked in business as usual. That's an amazing array against us in a way, but an incredible opportunity too. Going back for context, that book, The End of Nature, introduced you, Bill, as a central figure in our modern history. Bill McKibben, man and marvel, and a tricky mix of optimistic eye looking for a long time now at a perfectly deadly situation. In The New Yorker this week, you've got the UN Secretary General throwing his hands up about this ongoing arson of our only home. In the same piece, you're documenting the incredible drop in the price of alternative energies, solar, wind, hydropower, ocean power, and it's all cheaper than fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas, and it'll get to be much cheaper. Which is it going to be? And how the hell do we get there? Well, the point of the piece was to try and, you know, one of the jobs of writers is to try and reframe moments in ways that let people see them and understand them anew. So, you know, the climate debate has descended in uh, recent years into an endless series of somewhat Byzantine and complex important but hard to understand and follow sets of ideas, net zero this, carbon fee that, so on and so forth. And and all of that, as Greta Thunberg aptly diagnosed it at Glasgow, tends to sort of dissolve into blah, blah, blah. Mm. I think that really we're at the moment when we can say precisely what our goal is. Our goal needs to be to stop burning things on planet Earth. Human beings have engaged in combustion for 200,000 years. It's, as Darwin said, one of the two things alongside language that really made us human. And for the last 300 years, it's what's made us modern as we've figured out how to burn not just the wood and dung and things that were our birthright, but coal and gas and oil, the Mm. trinity that powered the industrial revolution and modernity itself. That need to do that, the 200,000-year-old need to set things on fire, we can now do away with if we want to in very short order. For all but a small handful of tasks, the fact is that the provision of the good Lord of a large ball of burning gas hung in the sky 93 million miles away provides us with what we need. It sends rays that photovoltaic panels can intercept and turn directly into power, and it differentially heats the earth, producing the breezes that turn wind turbines. And these are the sources of energy whose price is dropping fastest, whose ecological cost, though not trivial, is the most benign of the sources we know. And it's clearly our way out, our hope, our option. But we need to be able to see that, to enunciate it. And hence, having done that, we have some way of keeping score with where we are. It's a huge job for the imagination. And we'll get to that. But (laughs) I loved your line. The sun burns so we don't have to. But to undo, you know, buttered toast and all the things we rely on fire for, stick with the links here, including the possibility that the war in Ukraine could jolt us out of a kind of psychic numbing around where we are. The possibility that looking at that war, we would see another way. I mean, we're crushed by this convergence of things, climate crashing, viruses forever, 
and now horrifying war up close and personal from a sadistic autocrat and this sort of suicide note of nuclear war drifting all around. I mean, build other bridges there. Look, here's one of the roots of the problem that we're in. Fossil fuel, the thing on which modernity has depended, is an odd resource. It's very useful in that it's highly dense energy and so on. But one of its features is it's concentrated in a relatively few places around the Earth. These deposits of fossil fuel are mostly pretty well known to us. And because of that concentration, the people who live on top of them have acquired an immense amount of unearned power. So uh, Vladimir Putin is a perfect example. It's not like he or the Russian economy is doing anything of spectacular interest. I mean, if you look around your house for Russian things to boycott, you won't, unless you have a, you know, old bottle of Stoliknaya back in the back of the liquor cabinet, yeah. you're not going to find anything. I mean, it's not like they're doing anything very interesting. 60% of his export earnings come from oil and gas. And that's the same with other autocrats. <laughs> there was a headline in the uh, Guardian yesterday about Boris Johnson heading off to Saudi Arabia to try and supplement his fossil fuel supply, even on the day that they had beheaded 81 dissidents. You know, in our country, I guess slightly less melodramatically, the Koch brothers used their role as our biggest oil and gas barons to purchase themselves a political party and then use it to divide America into the dysfunctional idiocracy that it too often has become. And those things come into sharp focus in a moment like this. <laughs> Among other things, it's interesting to report that Coke Industries is virtually the only set of American corporations that have decided to keep doing business in Putin's Russia. Really? We're at the point when we would be very wise to seize the moment and say, we have got to free ourselves of this particular curse. The beautiful thing about wind and sun, besides the fact that they don't destroy the Earth's climate system, is that they're ubiquitous, omnipresent. There's some of them everywhere. So you're there in Boston, you get sun some of the year, and you get wind all of the year, uh, much of it blowing offshore. So all of a sudden, uh, the Bay State could be getting power from the Bay instead of power from the Persian Gulf. That would be a big change in lots of ways. It doesn't solve all the world's problems. It doesn't come without some of its own problems. We have to figure out how to mine the critical minerals, for instance, in ways that are as environmentally benign and do as little damage to human rights as is possible. But it's a hell of a lot more benign than the very literal hell that we are now intently building. And just reduces the stakes that, you know, if we're running the world on sun and wind, there's no Vladimir Putin who can embargo the breeze, can threaten to turn off the sun. The stakes are lower. We've watched this, you know, as we've been living through all kinds of nuclear terror, we've watched sort of aghast as, you know, the Russians have staged firefights in the hallways of nuclear reactors in Ukraine taken the workers at the Chernobyl plant hostage. One reflects that if you shell a solar panel, all you get is a pile of broken glass. 
And one reflects that if we were running our economy on solar power, well, the sun's delivering energy for the same price this month that it did last month. There'd be nothing there for cable news to shout about because those of us who are already lucky enough to have our solar panels linked to our electric vehicles and so on aren't actually dealing with the sticker shock that most of America is right now and the warping effects it has on our politics. Coming up, the optimist's dark night of the soul. What if this human game is winding down? This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source with the troubled keeper of the climate, Bill McKibben. I love the thought that the war in Ukraine could be a wake-up call. I mean, Chris Hedges wrote a wonderful piece this week. He's sick not just about the war, but reflecting that the best years of our lives since World War II, the whole history of the Cold War, arms race, NATO, has been a carnival of the war industries. It's humbling for people of our generation, Bill. It's devastating. It's very scary to be back in the moment when we have to think seriously about the things that we thought about as very young people. Um, I'm sure that there are people reliving those duck and cover drills who hadn't thought about them for decades because it felt like maybe we'd moved a little bit on from that. But we clearly haven't, and we clearly badly need to figure out how to recalibrate power on this earth. And at the heart of that, when we're talking about political power, is power power, the kind that we use to run our lives. There's no commodity, with the possible exception of food, that's as important and none as implicated in our savage geopolitics. The war in Ukraine is not a war for fossil fuel in quite the way that some of our Mideast adventures may have been, but it's definitely a war about fossil fuel. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been uh, working back and forth with one of my old colleagues in Ukraine, uh, Svetlana Romanko, yes. uh, on a series of pieces. I saw your piece and they, you sent her on oil again. Yes, and around the banks that produced it. She was pointing out, uh, reminding me that none of this is mysterious. <laughs> like, think about Exxon, the company that helped lead us down this route of climate denial for the last three decades, whose archives have now revealed that they knew everything about global warming 30 years ago. Well, 10 years ago and 15 years ago, they were making huge deals with Vladimir Putin, deals so lucrative for Russia that the CEO of Exxon, Rex Tillerson, later to become Trump's secretary of state, was right. awarded the order of friendship, the highest accolade that Russia can bestow on a foreigner. Putin himself pinned it on Tillerson at Putin's dacha outside Moscow. The same banks that we're doing everything we can to try and stop from funding fossil fuel. Uh, these same banks that have given a trillion dollars to the fossil fuel industry since the end of the Paris Climate Accords, these are the same guys who've been funding Putin uh, and Russia. And it's not like there was any mystery. I mean, we've known for decades what was going on with the climate, and anybody with a brain has known for a decade or more what's going on with Putin and Russia. I mean, this isn't even the first time the guys invaded Ukraine. So just the endless amoral business as usual has continued. 
but maybe this is a moment when it can stop because we can see it more visibly than ever before. All of its seeminess on display. And either we're going to double down and just, you know, sign up for a few more decades of this until we end up in a kind of literal hell, or we're going to seize this opportunity to make some real change. We don't get too many of these choice points, decision points, when things become fluid enough that we might actually make a break for it. My thought, Bill McKibben, is that you're a necessary American institution by now. The learned radical who won't give up. The voice of reckoning for many years, and strangely now a kind of affirmation too. I wonder how you cope with what you see, Bill. The good news and the bad. Work and life. Well, it's interesting, Chris. I've been thinking some about all this. My next book, which will be out at the end of May, is the closest thing I'll ever write to a memoir. It's called The Flag, The Cross, The Station Wagon, but the subtitle is more eloquent, really tells the story. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. <laughs> you know, I grew up in outside of Boston, in Lexington. I remember your dad. Yes. Business editor at the Boston Globe, and I yes. was a cub reporter. The book opens with um, something that happened when I was 10. The Vietnam veterans against the war, then led by a young, lanky... Lieutenant John Kerry, recently returned from Indochina, wanted to camp out on Lexington Green uh, as a protest, uh, you know, drawing on Lexington's uh, history as the birthplace of the American Revolution. And the selectmen of the town of Lexington told them they could not. Uh, so a bunch of townspeople, including my father, who, as you point out, was a business journalist and hence not a very likely activist and uh, <laughs> not an activist at all but exercised about that, went down and got arrested on Lexington Green in what remains the biggest single exercise of civil disobedience in Massachusetts history. And uh, mm. that moment very much stuck with me, helped inform my life in lots of ways, I think. As it happens, that's one part of my father's career I've gone on to emulate since I've been arrested <laughs> a dozen times by now. That's fascinating, and I never never suspected any of that, Bill. It's interesting. But stick with the ups and downs in your own famous career. I'm thinking carbon in the air. You made 350 parts per million, the mark that we could all watch, and it goes higher and higher. You report, nonetheless, today that we have 95% of the technology in hand to supply 100% of U.S. needs by 2035, and to make it affordable. Yes. So what, what's missing here? Well, our problem is not, as you say, technology. The scientists and engineers have done their job over the last decade. They've brought the price of renewable power down, 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 to the point where it's the cheapest way to generate power in this planet and in this country. That doesn't mean that we're going to do it, at least that we're going to do it in time that will have much effect on the curve of our plight. And of course, the reason for that is simply vested interest. Uh, the fossil fuel industry will not let go of its business model. They want to burn something. That's their entire business model, digging stuff up and burning it. And they're very good at playing the politics necessary to protect it. So case in point, we've all watched, at least me, with a certain shuddering despair as Joe Manchin has prevented like Lucy with the football, again and again and again, 
Joe Biden from passing the legislation he's been desperately trying to get through to do something about climate change. Joe Manchin, not only is a coal baron himself, he's taken more money from the fossil fuel industry than anyone else in Washington. Not an easy contest to win, but he won it. Mm. And the return on investment for big oil has been a million to one because he's blocked half a trillion dollars in new spending to help build out solar power and wind power. This is literally the difference, these kind of things between a future and no future for our country and for the planet. And that's the fight we're in. There's so much of your story right there, Bill, sort of foreseeing the apocalypse in vivid detail, plowing ahead with an eye for technological innovation, your own optimism maybe, but and still though the numbers are appalling. How do you stay on course? Well, I mean, there are plenty of times when I'm when I do a certain amount of despairing myself. Hell, the name of the first book that I wrote all those years ago, the first book about climate change, was you know the cheerful title was "The End of Nature." So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not like I'm a Pollyanna about any of this. But watching the progress of the engineers on this has been wonderful. Even more has been watching the progress of the movement building. 350.org was first iteration of this work. And I'm very proud of the work we've done. We've organized, we think, about 20,000 demonstrations in every country on earth except North Korea. We went on to help spearhead the fight over the Keystone Pipeline and to launch this fossil fuel divestment campaign that's become the largest anti-corporate campaign in history. We're at $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested from fossil fuel. The best part of that work was that many, many, many other people followed us into this space. And so this movement has grown and grown and grown. You've seen the Sunrise Movement in this country. And right? you've seen most beautifully... Big deal here. You've, that's right. And you've seen most beautifully the young people, the very young people, exemplified by Greta Thunberg, Greta is one of my favorite people to work with in the world. I adore her. She is a great hero, but she would be the first to say that the best news is there are 10,000 Greta Thunbergs and they have 10 million followers around the world. And that's all wonderful. I must say, however, over the last couple of years, I'd begun to worry that we were taking the most difficult problems on earth and just assigning them to 17-year-olds as extra mm. homework. You know, do this between pre-calc and field hockey practice, save the world. And that strikes me as neither moral nor practical, which is why my work for the last year or so has been launching this new and very fast-growing group that we're calling Third Act, that yes, tries, to, tries to take people over the age of 60 and get them mobilized around issues of climate and democracy. Well, because I think people our age took for granted the idea that, that we would have a physically hmm. stable world and we took for granted that we would have the democracy we'd grown up with. And now we are shocked to see the Arctic melting and we're shocked to see people invading the U.S. Capitol and trying to take it over. And so it is time for us to leverage what we can to back up those young people and get some stuff done. Bill Romani, what is the PPM number today? We're about 420 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. Wow. It's going up about two and a half or three parts per million per year. 
You remind me, though, that you've changed the tempo of the movement a number of times before you got to the 60 and over. I mean, you got yourself arrested at the White House in 2013, I think, again in 2015 at a mobile station in Burlington, Vermont. How many times by now have you been arrested? I think coming up on a dozen or so, and that's crazy. There's no reason that anyone should ever have to go to jail in order to get our leaders to pay attention to clear warnings from science. In a rational world, I can't think of anything stupider than that. But it's not an entirely rational world. So there are moments when we have to um, do some of this kind of stuff to underline the moral urgency of the moment. And I will say it's one of the tasks for which I think older people are particularly well-suited. I remember in 2011 when I was organizing the first arrests around Keystone in Washington, which turned into the biggest civil disobedience action about anything in this country in a long time. I wrote the letter asking people to come to Washington and get arrested. And one of the things I said was, I didn't think that young people should have to be the cannon fodder here. Young people were leading the work, but if you're 19, it's possible an arrest record's not the best thing for your resume. One of the few unmixed blessings of growing older is, past a certain point, what the hell are they going to do to you, you know? So it was with pleasure we watched people with hairlines like mine arriving in Washington. We didn't ask people as they were getting arrested, how old are you? Because that seemed rude. But we did say, who was president when you were born? And the two biggest cohorts, <laughs> Chris, were from the FDR and the Truman administrations. That's amazing. It was very good. And we this is the spirit we're discovering now as we do third act. It's really interesting demographic because on the one hand, we're told, and there's a little bit of evidence to support the idea, that people get more conservative as they age. On the other hand, this is a particularly interesting set of generations. If you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s right now, you were around in your first act to watch some of the most remarkable cultural, social, political transformation the world has ever seen. You were there for the start of the women's movement, the apex of the first civil rights movement, the anti-war movement that really helped usher out the age of massive wars of quite the kind we've been used to, or at least we hope so. And you were there for the first Earth Day in 1970. That was the first act, and it was good. The second act, eh, you know, maybe taken as a whole, these generations were a little more interested in consumerism than in citizenship. But that's water under the bridge, and now we emerge in our third act with skills, with resources, with time, probably with some grandkids, and hence with real reason to want to have a legacy other than they left the world a lot worse than they found it, which is going to be our legacy unless we get our act together. Problem is the issues we face are so huge. The first reflex, sometimes the seventh, tenth, eleventh, is to turn away, to be lost in a kind of sadness that the human prospect can feel so so bleak. We're thinking about, you know, crabs have almost disappeared from the New England shore. Lobsters are rushing past Maine toward Canada now. I mean, let me ask you, where has your own head turned from point of suspense between hope and fear when you were writing the book Falter just three or four years ago? The subtitle was, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out? Well, I think we're at a moment just where the, the questions are now so sharpened 
that we're going to find out one way or the other. Look, the thing to remember about climate change in particular, and probably about our prospects for democracy, is that it's a timed test. It's not one of these eternal mm. questions that's going to go on forever and ever. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told us that if we don't cut emissions in half by 2030, then we have no chance of meeting those targets we set in Paris just six years ago. And, you know, by my watch, 2030 is now seven years and eight months away. It's change. People who are listening to this are going to mostly live to see whether we do it or not. And if we don't, then these questions of hope and despair and whatever will, will be answered differently. But for the moment, I guess my thinking is don't think about them too much. Think about what one can do each morning. I get up each morning and try to figure out how much trouble I can cause for the fossil fuel industry and their political harem. So I do what I can. <laughs> that book, Falter, three or four years ago, began, this volume is bleak, you wrote at the start of it. I think we're uniquely ill-prepared to cope with the emerging challenges. So far, we are not coping with them. Still, there is one sense in which I'm less grim than in my younger days. This book ends with the conviction that resistance to these dangers is at least possible. We continue to see movements being built, and that's great. We also see, however, that autocracy is on the march around the world. You know, when I was at the Glasgow Climate Conference in November, it did strike me that it was a different world than even the Paris one just a few years before. Country after country, Brazil was now in control of a Trumpian uh, madman, Jair Bolsonaro, who's busily trying to log the Amazon as fast as he can. India is in control of uh, Modi, who is an autocrat in his own way. The Greta Thunberg of India, a wonderful young woman, in jail last year, wasn't even granted a visa to travel to Glasgow. Obviously, Russia is not open to democratic persuasion. Uh, China has become ever more locked down. 10, 15 years ago, we did hundreds of uh, demonstrations with 350.org in the People's Republic of China, but now no one would dare. Mm. She would not allow it. And of course, our own country has, for the moment, uh, survived a near-death experience of its democracy, but not in any way to be taken for granted. And depending on how the midterm elections go, it's possible that any prospect of making real progress on things like climate change will disappear again. So it's a hard moment. We have to seize it with everything we can. One of the things that I think is important is to understand that in that world, we need to think more creatively than just about politics. At Third Act, our big effort at the moment around climate is to get people to sign a pledge, and many thousands of people have, that come year's end, they will cut up their credit cards with Chase and Citi and Bank of America and Wells Fargo unless those four biggest American banks stop funding the expansion of the fossil fuel industry. And that's one place where older people are uniquely positioned to work. Fairly or not, we ended up with 70% of the financial assets in this country compared with 5% for millennials. So if we want the banks to listen, it's going to take some gray beards to make it happen. Coming up, glimpses of what is possible in Norway, in Namibia. This is Open Source.
Bill McKibben, a few small countries out there have reached the goal. Kind of amazing. Norway, for example, Namibia, Costa Rica, Iceland, they're already producing more than 90% of their electricity from clean sources, you write. How did they do it? And what was the politics in very different smallish places that turned it around? Well, many of those places are, it's politics, but also geology. Norway has lots and lots of hydropower and Iceland, lots of geothermal power, for instance. Costa Rica has a fair amount of hydropower. But there's also interesting politics underway. I think Costa Rica has decided that it can do without a military, which turns out to be a good way to get a lot of other things done. Norway, obviously, has you know taken the winnings it made in North Sea oil and used them to produce a level of sustainable prosperity among its people that uh, is unequaled in some ways anywhere else around the world. So uh, they're reminders that there are different ways of doing business in this planet than our model, which clearly isn't working very well. I mean, any of that adaptable to our setting? I mean, all the technology is adaptable. And the question is, is the politics adaptable? Can you beat the fossil fuel industry? Can you break their political power in order that we can do things like pass the obvious legislation through the U.S. Senate that would help us begin to tackle these problems? Tackle the problems both of fossil fuel dependency and of democratic deficit, you know? If we could break that political power, I said before, and I meant it, that the Koch brothers had taken their oil and gas winnings and bought themselves a political party. And that fateful moment has had Mm. enormous implications all over the world. I mean, one of the reasons why even the Paris Climate Accords were as weak as they were, why they were a set of voluntary pledges instead of a treaty that would have been binding, is because the whole rest of the world figured out that there was no chance ever that the U.S. Senate would come up with 66 votes to approve a treaty that limited the use of fossil fuel that the oil industry had gamed our political system enough to make that impossible. And so that dysfunction has had extraordinary implications already. Bill, I keep wondering, where are the scientists at large? We know Jim Hansen of NASA and his dire warnings going back years, mainly because you you helped make Jim Hansen famous. But if science is the route to survival here. You'd think we'd know some more scientists who are working and fighting about it. You know, happily, scientists are getting more and more willing to be outspoken, and more and more of them are are speaking up, demonstrating, taking part. And I try to talk about some of them in this New Yorker piece. Mark Jacobson at Stanford is a great hero. He and his lab have been the ones that have come up with the plans for how every country on earth and every state in the union could move to 100% renewable energy inside of a decade at affordable cost. Explain Mark Jacobson. Sounds fascinating, but he's had breakthrough after breakthrough. But what's the key? The key is that the energy that we're talking about here makes complete sense. So here's how to think about it for a minute, Chris. We've grown up assuming that coal and gas and oil were the obvious logical way to run things and that if we had to, we'd come up with some alternative energy, but it was going to be expensive and painful and stuff. But if you think about it, that's just silly. I mean, coal and gas and oil are extraordinarily 
difficult to use because you have to keep getting more of them all the time. <laughs> if you have a coal-fired power plant, well, every month you have to dig up a bunch more coal and ship it where you're going and set it on fire. That's different than the much more elegant and easy process of, now that we know how to do it, putting up a solar panel and just waiting for the sun to come above the horizon and deliver the energy for free. You have to mine some lithium or things to make it, build it in the first place, but you only have to mine them once, you know. Uh, one of the interesting things I note in this New Yorker article is that the guess is that the total mining burden on the planet would drop about 80% as we move to renewable energy. 40%, this was a number that floored me, 40% of all the ship traffic on the high seas is just moving coal and gas and oil around so that we can amazing, burn them. Amazing number. Half the ships that you see go by, that's basically what's going on. The U.S. military, biggest carbon emitter of any institution in the world, 75% uh, of their logistical lift capacity is solely to move fossil fuel around so they can keep everything running. And you get a good sense from watching the Russians bog down in Ukraine of why that is. Uh, you know, that's what a modern military is, just a way to move around big piles of fossil fuel so you can you keep your war machine running. If we got off of that, we'd begin dematerializing the world in really interesting ways. And when you see it in action, it's remarkable. I did a piece some years ago now for The New Yorker where I'd spent a lot of time out in the most remote parts of Africa watching people who've never had electric power, a power of any kind, get it for the very first time thanks to the fact that solar panels were getting cheap all of a sudden. I mean, I sat in a village in the equator, the equator in northern Ghana. The day before, they'd switched on power from 40 solar panels in a little field at the edge of the village and each of the huts wired with kind of rudimentary wiring. The old men, the village elders, we had a wonderful long discussion in the hot sun. They kept handing me cold bottles of water to drink, for which I was grateful. But in my clueless Western way, it took me good 15 minutes to figure out why they were so proud to be handing it to me until the day before <laughs> there'd never been a refrigerator in that town. No one had ever had a cold bottle of water. And once you saw it that way, you know, once you realized that we suddenly lived in a world where the cheapest way to get power was to point a sheet of glass at the sun, I mean, that's, you know, that's Hogwarts scale magic, Chris. <laughs> you speak easily of solar panels and electricity generated easily from the sun. But I, I keep wondering, is the future going to be electric cars that are clean, doing most of the things cars have always done? Or what about something really different? I mean, is it required that in this transition, we, we preserve the incredibly fluid mobility of our freeway society? Well, that question, I don't know the answer to. I think I'm too old to be <laughs> You're not too old for anything. Well, I, my point is, I, I think over the next 10 years, I could be wrong, but I don't think there's a way to make truly, truly deep change on the scale we'd need in those ways. I don't think over the next 10 years, we can change America entirely from an automobile culture to something else. So I think we better change it 
over the short run to a culture where those cars run on electricity, not on gas. I hope in the process we do a lot of work to make sure we drive less, that we build out electric bus routes and electric train routes, and that we get as many electric bikes as we can out into the world. But it's not going to happen overnight. Something above 95% of passenger miles in this country are driven in automobiles, trucks, and cars. That's not going to change in the seven and a seven years and eight months between now and 2030. Not going to change enough to change those numbers. So, uh, But I also think that merely shifting to sun and wind is not going to be the be-all and the end-all, that probably it's an intermediate step towards a more interesting world, uh, towards one where we're thinking of something other than consumption. Yeah, thank you. I hope so. What does it tell you, Bill McKibben, that a climate branch of science fiction is getting established as a, as a literary genre. The imagination's way to think about all this. Kim Stanley Robinson and his Ministry for the Future may be the, uh, the high point so far. Yes. It's a desperate epic with an optimistic twist. It's about a killer heat wave in India, really deadly crisis, but it, it begins to wake up the world. And you reviewed it very, very, very favorably. For me, the high point of the Glasgow conference, probably, one of the two or three anyway, was wandering around with Stan through the park in Glasgow where young people led by Greta were assembling for their big youth march through the streets of that Scottish city. And there they were with bands and signs, and it was a wonderful, wonderful morning. And it felt like a scene out of the end of his novel, of people coming together to do what needs doing. And it was great fun to be there with him and with Greta and with all their <laughs> ilk. It's a good sign that the world's cultural power is coming to bear on these questions. And absolutely necessary. One of the things we've been doing at Third Act is trying to bring those cultural icons from that amazing first act of this generation back mm. into this fight. So I've gotten to do great interviews in the last few weeks that we've been airing on our national calls with Carol King, with Bette Midler. We've got Patti Smith hard at work, you know, on and on, because we need that kind of cultural power too. It's a huge part of what makes movements work. And, and we desperately need this movement to work and fast. Back to Stan Robinson for a moment. I mean, part of his genius is for imagining small local bursts of new thinking and organizing, like different patterns of grazing, wild oyster farming in the strangest places, alternatives to capitalism, I think he's into the idea that climate change changes everything. Also, that the best plan Bs will come out of the multitudes from the ground up. Yes, amen to all of that. Climate change is such a huge disruption in the order, by far the biggest thing that's ever happened in the course of human history, that of course, it shifts everything else. It's not an issue, you know. It's not like one line, one more thing on a list of issues. It's the lens through which we need now to view the world. 
the way to judge every other thing that goes on around us, including, you know, the steps we take to try and prevent war and disaster of that kind. We're playing for all the marbles. There is nothing else that matters in quite the same way. And everything that does matter, race and justice, uh, uh, they're all bound up too in these questions around how we survive this most unethical, unfair, and impossible of dilemmas. Two years now, Bill, we've been wondering whether COVID would serve as a test of people's ability, people, societies, cultures, countries, a test of their ability to respond to universal danger, like climate change. I mean, what... What have you learned so far? Well, the test so, of the COVID test. So, I think that the response is deeply mixed. On the one hand, most people have done the right thing. Most Americans lined up to get their shots and most Americans wore their masks and whatever else. But look at the same set of players. It was the Russian Petro oligarch Vladimir Putin, who did his best and with quite effectively to destabilize our democracy. Who were his assistants in this work, as we now understand? It was people like Fox News or the Koch brothers. And they're exactly. In, in, what, the, sen- in what sense? When he decided to undermine our elections and things, who did he turn to for help? Through whose channels did one go? Look, the same people, <laughs> the same institution, Fox News, that spent the better part of the last two years spreading weird hysteria about vaccines and things are the same ones who are repeating Putin's talking points about war in Ukraine. It's of a piece. I got to say, I take that one particularly to heart now that we're doing all this work with older Americans like me, because Fox News is just a, a form of elder abuse and nothing else. Its average viewer is 68 years old. Its entire business model is just trying to terrify old people in the service of Rupert Murdoch's, well, bad ideas. So we're at the point where all this stuff comes together. And let's hope that our better angels, some of which were clearly on display during COVID, triumph here. Most Americans did the right thing. Most people around the world did the right thing. But there was a substantial minority who didn't, and a substantial minority may be enough to keep us from making the progress that we need on all these issues. Bill, here's a modest little little request. This transition has to be understood locally, regionally, practically. I wish there were regional conferences or city conferences going on almost continually. My own gas company or electric company being tested on what they're thinking, what their finance people are thinking, as well as the engineers are thinking. I'd love to know what state and local utility regulators have in mind, too. The only way to do that in our current system is to organize, and that's what people are doing. So 350.org has, you know, 350 Massachusetts is a wonderful offshoot. And as we speak, 350 Massachusetts, there are people conducting a hunger strike in order to focus attention on a series of gas peaker plants, one in Peabody, Massachusetts. So even in your neck of the woods, that's precisely what's going on. And they need all the attention and help that media can provide to help bring those messages out. 
That's why we organize the ways that we do. We have third act chapters all over the country now, including in the Boston area. And that's precisely why, because we need to be able to work both locally and globally at the same time. Bill, that's amazing. You remember the hood, uh, but also you have a kind of foxhole courage about you, Bill, and I think it's <laughs> it's contagious. Well, we shall see. But the um, the the moment is now. If people have been keeping their powder dry, now to use your foxhole analogy, now is the moment <laughs> because uh, uh, we're we're you know when the temperature in the Antarctic is. 70 degrees above what it should be, that's a pretty good sign that we're mm. backs are pretty much to the wall here. Mm. Bill, it's such a pleasure to hear you over the many years uh, and keep doing it. You too, um, brother. Many, many yeah. thanks for all your good work. Bill McKibben's essay titled In a World on Fire, Stop Burning Things appeared in the New Yorker magazine dated March 18th. His books run from The End of Nature in 1989 to falter as the human game begun to play itself out. You can also find his climate movement at 350.org. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. At their website, quincyinst.org, you can find a lot of QI work on climate change, including a brief by Anatole Levin titled Climate Change, the Greatest National Security Threat to the United States. And check out their online magazine, responsiblestatecraft.org. Make a note and mark your calendar. Martin Luther King Jr.'s transformative vision of peace and his famous sermon on the Vietnam War from 1967 will be presented again by his daughter, Dr. Bernice King, in the Riverside Church in New York on Saturday, April 2nd at 4 p.m. Speaking for the Quincy Institute will be Pastor Mike McBride and QI's President Andrew Basevich. Saturday, April 2nd, 4 p.m. for virtual and in-person attendance. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of smart, independent podcasts like Ministry of Ideas from Zachary Davis. Listen to Zach's series, Making Meaning, with 17 episodes and counting, each one a gem of wisdom about the possibilities and poetics of meaning in the modern age. From a leading philosopher, sociologist, psychologist, writer, or composer. Soak it up at ministryofideas.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And listen to the whole panoply of Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org.